0: Hey, before we get started, I wanted to tell you about a podcast I've been listening to that I can't get enough of. It's called Business Casual. It's a new podcast by Morning Brew. Every week, host Kenzie Grant breaks down the biggest stories in business with the biggest names in business. They're diving into everything from the economics of influencer marketing and the booming fitness industry to the myth that is work-life balance and the ins and outs of M&A. Listen to Business Casual wherever you get your podcasts. My name is Jeremy Kirkland, and this is Blammo, a podcast exploring the world of fashion with the people who shape it. My guest this week is John Reardon, Patek Philippe expert and founder of Collectibility. John Reardon shares his personal history, taking us on a journey through visiting watch museums as a kid, living with friars, yes, friars, while interning at Sotheby's, 10 years inside Patek Philippe's family business, and why he decided to take the big jump out on his own. It is an absolute pleasure to have you on the the master of Patek Philippe. You are you're you're a bit of lore in in the watch world because I don't I don't think you do too many like forward facing interviews, huh?
1: I must have reached a certain age if I'm considered a, a lore. Uh, yeah, I have I've done many many written interviews, right? But this is I think it's my first podcast. There we go. It's the first time that. Uh, You're hearing it now live, (laughs) unedited. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What's on my mind? Yeah. Well, I'm I'm very very
0: excited that you're on this. I I remember I went to an auction preview and had met you, and you were you know I was just kind of a chump kid, and you were surrounded by all these extremely important people at the time, and you were showing off you know whatever perpetual chronograph calendar or whatever it was at the time, but because you you know just to jump back. You're at,
1: at Patek Philippe, yeah. originally.
0: Yeah. You're at Patek Philippe, so w- kind of like walk me through some of this stuff because I know now you're on your own, but you know you are kind of like the Patek God. W- where uh, where did this come from? Well,
1: years before I could even say the words Patek Philippe, it, it all started in in my hometown in Bristol, Connecticut. Okay, I grew up nearby the American Watch and Clock Museum, and literally on, on a bet or we'll call it a dare. I was like 12 or 13 years old. My, um, well, now he's my brother, in, uh, brother-in-law, but he was dating my sister at the time. He nice. was a watch collector from the Midwest. And he, uh, said, Oh, John, you gotta, you gotta check out this museum. And, and I literally laughed at him. And, and I remember this, this phrase I said, I, what kind of loser goes to a watch museum?" <laughs> well, wait, how old and are you at the time? I was about 12, 13, okay. at yeah. my son's age. And those words set me on my life's path. So I went to I went to the uh, American Watch and Clock Museum and befri- befriended uh, Stuart Mitchell, who was the curator at that time. I had a, uh, a couple pocket watches. I just I uh, bought at a flea market and wanted to ask questions about them. Then I very very quickly started becoming fascinating, learning about the uh, the technical history, the the, the social history the aesthetic history and it all, all connected and clicked in my mind. Yeah. And uh, just as a teenager, I kept going back. I, I volunteered, I learned uh, clock making at that time. Thanks to Stuart. And and also from um, uh, Dana Blackwell, who um, becomes a very, very important part of my life. Uh, the late Dana Blackwell, he uh, uh, Stuart and Dana, they, they taught me horology. I, I under, I learned uh, how, Technology and art and history connected in a very real way, and I have to say that really helped me through um, high school and then, and then college and, and set me on my path in the sense that whatever I was studying, uh-huh. I always would relate back to watches and clocks, uh, for example, physics class okay not a, the most exciting thing in high yeah, school, yeah, yeah. but I remember connecting connecting the dots of how physics could help solve problems in a very real way. If I was working on an escapement or, or with the pendulum with a clock and enabled to, uh, to use really apply what I was learning in a real way, uh, from school into, uh, my passion, which was, uh, at that time, clock making and later on some basic watch making. So, you know, it all, it all clicked at that point in my, in my life. And, uh, after that, when I went, uh, went to uh, college, I amazingly was able to spend a lot of my time doing watch and clock related things. Every, every Friday, I, uh, as an upperclassman, I was working at Spidell. You know those uh, from, from Providence, Rhode Island, those bracelets, yeah. um, the famous Spidel bracelets. Um, I started to learn about distribution and design from Spidel. On um, every Tuesday, I was uh, going to the Willard House and Clock Museum in Grafton, Massachusetts. And uh, this is, wow, this is a throwback because this would be 1996. Okay. I'd go into the basement, also learning clock making and helping with restoration. I met this uh, this young gentleman named Michael Friedman, who you might know. Yeah. Uh, Michael Michael and I would sit in that basement. And I can't believe I mean, how many years ago is this? Like 20, 23, 24 years ago. And talk about our future and what we hope to do and accomplish in the watch world. And now he is uh, a big shot at AP, yeah. living, in, uh, living in Geneva. I think he's the, the head of complications right now, setting the strategic path for Audemars Piguet, which is incredible. And uh, and I've had my own different journey, and I've been so fortunate that just from being a couple of kids in a basement, we've been able to turn our, or in my case, my passion into my, my livelihood. Yeah. I would definitely say is probably one of the few people that I've ever had on the show where,
0: I mean that your path surprisingly is, is sounds almost linear in the sense that you were really into watches and you, you know, you you were going to museums. This wasn't like, Oh, I was in this career and I found a fascination with this and I pursued my passion. Like, I mean, that is a a lot of history and you know, to be honest, absorption throughout, throughout time to, to get to that, like no pun intended. So when you go to this museum when you're little, like what what is there, or when
1: you're twelve? Ah, so when I when I first went there, you're just struck by the sound. This museum is not extremely well attended, um, and I encourage everyone listening to, to check right. it out. Of course, okay. Of course, it's when you walk in, the first thing you hear is is the ticking of the clocks, hundreds of clocks, and it's haunting, especially when you're in the museum alone. And many people that work in museums they they say that the clocks and the watches speak to them, Whoa. and it's a little eerie, but it's also <laughs> it's kind of fun. Um, but in a way, when you're in uh, a space and all you hear is the ticking, it's it drowns out all other noise because that's all you're listening to, and and it does it does speak to you. And and uh, in, in my mind right now, I'm just hearing the the, the ticking of these hundreds of, of clocks and it's uh i mean it's just like if you the roar of a stadium when you walk in that same that same feeling that it's just uh it's just one singular moment uh that you'll never forget and uh, and that that's what it was like when i first went in the museum and met these individuals who um I took me on and and they taught me about a subject matter that at that point i had no interest in whatsoever yeah and uh and i'll i'll always appreciate that and to to this day if you go to the museum uh, one of the things I did is I restored a lot of the, the blinkers, these blinking clocks from the 19th century. where You know, like they have the eyes that go back and forth. They're connected to the escapement. They did, uh, they did lions and various animals. At, yeah. Okay. Um, but this is uh, mid-19th century version of oh, okay. Felix the Cat. Wait, wait, wait. wait, wait right. So there, uh, there's one clock there uh, that uh, to this day you could sponsor a clock at the American watch and clock museum. And I always got a kick out of uh, this gambrinus clock, the king of beer. And uh, every year you can adopt a clock at the museum. You send them a few hundred dollars and uh, you know, know, it's a, it's a fundraiser. And, and I think, uh, I hope I, I hope I paid my, my check this year, but (laughs) the last few years uh, you go in and, and it's like, you know, sponsored by John Reardon, uh, the gambrinus beer clock. And it's still ticking its eyes going back and forth to this day. So I, uh, I, I, my heart is still in that museum. And whenever I, I go back to, to Bristol, I stop by. And uh, and I do, this is my plug for the museum, encourage everyone. If you have kids, take them, check it out. They'll kick and scream and they'll complain. But you know what? Something could resonate with them because you never know what life experiences can set you on the path.
0: Yeah, That's huge. I, I mean, so when you're there, and what's interesting to me too, is is a lot of this, this you know, the first thing you didn't say is like, Oh, my dad had a Rolex or my grandfather had a blank. You were getting into watches but getting more into the the engineering and the mechanical side of it. So this wasn't even about like collecting anything, it was about
1: repairing? I think at first I mean go way back, I, I and I think everyone has a story like this. We love taking things apart and yeah. the challenge of putting them back together. TRs in my day <laughs> <laughs> it's, when I was uh, wow, like seven or eight years old I received the Buck Rogers yeah. watch oh it's so cool and and I still have I still have the movement to this day that's in pieces I took it apart and my goal was to put it back together and I love this watch never put it back together never could put it back together and uh, to this day, I haven't taken the time to do it because, you know, it, it's kind of a little life story. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sometimes you got to deconstruct in order to um, reconstruct and, and move forward. And, th- and that, that little, it's a plastic geared watch reminds me of that every, every day. So, yes, I had that interest in the mechanical engineering, um, but didn't take it seriously until, until high school uh, where I was able to like properly take a, a clock apart down to every last piece to be able to polish the pivots and do simple gear repairs and uh that uh that was fun and all through high school and through college I had my own little clock repair business on the side which uh uh, to this day my my prior college roommates still they were just laughing at me because I'd be like it'd be all it might be a party going on and I'd be the kid taking a clock apart well, I guess probably back fixing dad's exactly. grandfather. Yeah, but he's getting hundreds of bucks for it, so he's buying the beer. So that's <laughs> that's that that pretty much how that that all went down. <laughs> oh. So what you it's so you have this fun.
0: so you have this business on the side and I mean it, it, that's just hobby stuff like it was the goal down the road to grow this business and be a repair shop or
1: uh, not at all. This was this was all just fun and games right. at this point. And then when I was about to graduate from from college um uh, Providence College. Okay. Uh, I received a call from my, my mentor, uh, Dana Blackwell. And uh, Dana, at that point, it was in his 80s. Mm-hmm. And his anything he told me was the word of God. I listened to him. He was like a, an adopted grandfather. He... Oh. He um, was, uh, had a very amazing background with Lewis Engineering um, um, and, and earlier that with various watchmaking companies, but was one of the leading horologists in, in the world at that point. And also close personal friends with um, uh, Henry Stern, um, Philippe Stern's father, yeah. Henry Stern's grandfather. And uh, they were in business together in the, in the 19, 1970s. So, so in short, Dana called me one day. And said, you should talk to Darren Schnipper. And I said, who's that? He's like, she's the the head of Sotheby's. I was like, interesting. Uh, He told me they sometimes take interns for the summer. Oh, okay. So this this sounded very interesting to me. And I remember he sent me a letter, handwritten. He had the most beautiful handwriting. And it had Darren's name, her phone number. And I, I basically cold called her. And she very kindly... Uh, set me up uh, after a series of interviews to be an intern. And this was in the summer of 1997. I was planning on going to Africa to be in the Peace Corps. But this phone call... Big pivot. Uh, it was a <laughs> huge pivot <Yeah. laughs> to go to New York and to work with uh, with Darren Schnipper uh, at, at Sotheby's on York Avenue. And this was like such an unexpected life change yeah, for me. But I did it. I signed up for that, uh, that internship, and I showed up at the first day. I think there was about 99 girls and one boy. I was the, the only male <laughs> out of this whole group of interns. Because a lot of people send, uh, at that point of time, too, they send, uh, uh, send their daughters off to the auction houses and uh, for a, a, a future in, in uh, using art history degrees to be an art specialist. That was kind of the path they were on. Uh, I was this, this this geek who's like I want to play with watches. So so I showed up and uh it was incredible because it was unpaid and living in New York City yeah. without making a penny. It was it was difficult. And at that point, thanks uh to Providence College, I was and this I've never shared publicly before. Um, the Dominicans, the Dominican order runs um, Providence College. Okay. And they have uh, a, a, a priory in Midtown on the Upper East Side. And the friars uh, welcomed me to stay in the priory. What? For a very small amount of money. Okay. Um, three meals a day, plus, plus my own room. And I literally lived it's good six months while it was my first time at Sotheby's with the friars. I was the only one not wearing the white robes. <laughs> right. I would share my meals with them, and what a, what a great group of guys. I mean, they were just they were they were they were fun, great sense of humor, highly academic, and uh, I, I, once again, I'll never forget. Just one day, one of the guys. One, one of the guys I shouldn't. One of the fathers is a more appropriate way of saying. It <laughs> yeah, yeah. He's like, Ch- check this. Watch out. And I look at it, and it's a uh, it's an eighteen k patek Philippe calatrava, and he's like, I've had this this all my life. Can can you tell me about it? And my eyes just popped because I didn't expect a. Uh, a friar would have like, have a. This pays well. Yeah. <laughs> like what is this? You <laughs> get a t-shirt that says. That. Yeah. That. So he shows he shows me the watch. And he's like, actually, I actually have two, and I was like, Are you kidding? Okay. And I, I ended up helping, and this is probably the first consignment I ever took for auction in my life It was from a a, a, a friar that was sold at Sotheby's, and uh, I remember it was a nice automatic. Uh, I can't remember what reference, maybe. Uh, 2552 it was, a, it was a beautiful watch so that you know what everything happens for a reason and these strange turns in life they all bring us to where we were meant to be and uh, and and with watches and uh what it's the people that i've met thanks to watches whether it's uh, a a friar <laughs> Or it's whether it's uh, the, worked with uh, a number of am- amazing people in my in my career. Yeah. The one thing that's for sure is you know you just be honest and true to yourself, and and people are going to be honest and true to you. I, I hope the best from everyone I meet, and 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 life moves on. We ha- we have a lot of fun connecting over these little objects that we wear on our wrist. Right. Holy cow! Okay, so you're
0: you're interning at Sotheby's, and and just f- so the audience knows. It's very like the the watch auction world was what a, a fraction of a fraction at that time of what it oh, of what it is now. You could now, do right? ten
1: million globally, it was huge, and that's all sales. Yeah. And now I mean a like hundred million time. per auction house is, is normal today. Jeez Louise. Okay.
0: And so you you enter this world and like what is what is it like in terms of kind of helping build this? Because I think a lot of people don't realize this, and I'll publicly say this, you have really, you know, you were the person behind all the other people who really helped create and build what the the watch auction world is today. And I think that was, one, I mean, obviously you're a very generous and, and you know, authentic guy, but the fact that, um, you know, you kind of helped find these things and create, you know, this Market in a way that just didn't exist before.
1: So, was this where it kind of began? Uh, I, I think that's uh, very kind, your words, but a uh, credit goes to a lot of people. M- much behind every than, leader is a good yeah, team. Exactly. But you need a vision caster. I mean, I think, uh, like Darren Schnipper, she started an auction in 1979. Okay. Uh, so, at that point in time, in the e- going through the 80s, Wristwatches at auction or an anomaly. I mean, you might see a couple of them show up. Yeah. It was just uh, wasn't even considered serious. There was first there were silver sales that would occasionally have some some pocket watches, and okay. then there was more important pocket watches. Uh, and as the eighties went on, that would sometimes have some wristwatches, but it was, it was a very different market, a different clientele and uh for for those that helped create this market such as Osvaldo Patrizzi and and Darren Schnipper at that time talking about the auction world. Yeah. I mean they they were visionaries ahead of their time. And I was just so fortunate um just as things were getting going in the 1990s. Right. Um thanks to um uh, uh, the vision of, of 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 many many people what happened with wristwatches in particular the Italians helped create it in the 1990s
0: and Sidebar and explain that sure. a lot of times Because I think a lot of people have discussed The significance of the Italians yeah and their culture and making wristwatches popular. But I
1: don't know if anyone's really, like, explained that further. If you would, just if you would. Uh, I'll do a quick sidebar, but that could be a whole other show. It's the Italian influence <laughs> on uh, the modern wristwatch market <laughs> right. uh, of, of vintage collecting, we should say. Yeah. No, but in the, the, the late 80s, in the early 1990s, there were uh, particular market leaders that just... Uh, they stormed onto the scene and were the first people to say that these watches are actually worth something. Um, to me, one of the most pivotal auctions was the uh, the Art of Patek Philippe sale. Actually, there's two sales from from Antiquorum. The first one from 1989 uh, was done very close, and almost a partnership with Patek Philippe. Hmm. And this was uh, Philippe Stern and uh, Osvaldo Patrizzi. I put this sale together of oh, this catalog, which uh, is is just so informative I and mean, when you look at the prices things brought it was almost it's comical from today's view, but at that point, there were astronomical price points brought for perpetual chronos uh, simple chronographs time onlys. It was the first time that people were really academically on a global stage competing to own some of these timepieces now that was all driven by the consigners and Many cases were Italian, and the buyers, in even more cases, were Italian. Right. Um, the Italians had the the vision, the the understanding, the know how, and the aesthetic appreciation for uh, wristwatches, uh, and uh, in particular Patek wristwatches, before anyone else did. As a collectible, there were others that you buy one from your retailer and you know pass sure. it down to the next generation. Yes, that existed, but to look at the wristwatches art. And to start spending art money on a on a vintage wristwatch, that started uh, in Italy and and continues they they, they continue to be a, a market leader today with not only the, the many of the dealers, um, yeah. but uh, with many of the biggest collectors in the world. And I've I've had the pleasure to get to know um, Sandro Frattini, who is the arguably one of the top two or three greatest watch particularly vintage watch collectors in in the world. And, uh, and he, was, uh, he was at the top of the food chain then. He's at the top of the food chain now. And uh, he, he uh, recently published a book, uh, which I was part of, that came out last year called My Time in, in conjunction with, with Christie's, which shows his collection. And he's the kind of guy, what can I say? He is two steel 15-18s. I mean, if you have two, can you imagine? You go through how many two, five, two, three, uh, World Times. He has it's one after another. His his enamel wristwatch, uh, Patek, sorry, his enamel dial, Patek Philippe vintage wristwatches are. I mean, it's just unmatched what he has for twenty four eighty one. So all those tropical scenes. So this this took um, it took the Italians to push the aesthetic, to push the drive, to push the market, and that all happened in um, the late nineteen eighties to early nineteen nineties. So going back to like where where I step. Come into the play, and it wasn't I wasn't into it until the ninth, late 1990s and this was already in full swing uh, Antiquorum was king <clears throat> Christie's was this uh, a, a tiny little auction house at that point in terms of watches, same with sotheby's they, they were very small in terms of of, uh, of watches relative to antiquorum <clears throat> they were king in the, in the late 1990s and that 's where I think things get really really interesting because the whole auction game the auction Competition that's still very much alive today is is another storyline that I think a movie could be written about some someday. Yeah. So <clears throat> I didn't create the market by any means. I uh, my through my 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 passion and my uh, perseverance, I I joined an amazing group of people at the, at the right time in the right place. Right. And, and I can wow. I was, I was thinking about this uh, recently. There was one time I was I went on a boat, a sailboat in in long Island uh on the boat with uh Darren schnipper or her her husband uh aurel box uh also uh livia livia yeah. Russo. Okay. um they weren't they weren't married at that time uh tim bourne uh i think uh jane Jane pocket was on the boat she was a, a cataloger at that time from from Sotheby's, uh, and i and I was there. We were stranded the motor died we were trying to get back to shore it and down the whole industry has yeah, gone and I was <laughs> thinking that boat. I just remember the stars. It was like, it was so bright. And we were, we were stranded in the, well, not, we're probably like hundred meters off of shore. I mean, it could have went swimming, but it wasn't going to happen. And all I remember is this. And I say this affectionately. All I remember is this being on that boat is one sound and one sound only. And that is Aurel talking constantly. He would not <laughs> stop talking. I don't remember what he was talking about, but, uh, just like when you listen to an auction and he could he could go nonstop for, for three hours yeah. and, 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 and hold court. That's what it was like on that boat. And he was a young guy. He was just getting started out at that time. We were all on the Sotheby's team, all hired by Darren. And I think that boat literally was kind of the boat into the future. When I think about uh, uh, Tim is heading up now, uh, Bonhams with Jonathan Derricott, uh, Darren, is uh is, is still at Sotheby's and she's still the, the queen of her throne I went on to uh, uh to Christie's and Norell of course what he's done with with Phillips uh and Livia is just uh, another story it's just incredible to think that that boat going back to what was this 20 something years ago yeah. had all of us on it and uh and that was I think uh a, I look back at those days affectionately and uh it was uh, it was a different time, but uh, in many cases, the exact same players. Right. Oh, wow. Jeez, that's like a serious murderer's
0: row you guys have on that boat, first off. <laughs> but like, so what was your day-to-day at that time? Because I think a lot of people don't really have a full understanding of what someone does within that auction world. You know, I think nowadays people think, oh, it's just someone who's answering emails and looking at pictures, you know, but like what... Because th- there was a lot of stuff that you were doing that was more than just finding and authenticating, right? Oh, at that point of
1: time, wow. It was, it was, a, it was a different era because this was before computers as we use them now. Yeah. So it's way re- before Instagram ridiculous. and yes. emails and websites <laughs> and all that. So the, we would get stacks of photographs. Sent to us, and have to write letters back to people. what a concept <laughs> and uh, and I hated doing that. Oh, we call them nsV letters, no sale value, so someone sends you their forty dollar Waltham, which they think is worth you know a million dollars and and you have to write a a beautiful letter reflecting the auction house stating your watch is worth close to nothing so For every person every everyone got a personal letter back because their emails were just not done. Sure. So the other thing we'd get is faxes. We'd get faxes all of the time. And, uh, it was, uh, I, I remember my first meeting with the fax machine. You're like horrified, like which, which way do you put, yeah. <laughs> put the, the letter in? So faxes were uh part of the business. Um, but, uh, the part that was, was most incredible, and it just continues to this day. As travel, it was a face-to-face business, and so I was starting to travel with the, with some of the specialists to, to get to meet some of the the, the key players. Um, but all of us now are talking about databases, uh, coming back to in this digital world, blockchain, and how it's coming towards right. uh, the watch the market. But back then, would I my job? And I'll tell you, this is the best graduate school ever is you get scissors, glue stick, old catalogs, and you'd cut and paste each watch outside uh, of the catalog. You'd paste it on this um, essentially cardboard. And this was Sotheby's database of watches. And it went back decades. So it was my job to help build that database. And every watch, you would have the name of the buyer, Mm -hmm. the name of the seller, the the price that the, the piece brought, and um, it would be filed, so you'd just go under minute repeating wristwatches, and you'd see every minute repeating wristwatch from all auction houses. Uh, by the way, and this was all done by hand. And I, uh, at the time, actually, I can't believe it was like, what, what? What have I done with my life that I have to sit sixty hours a week and cut and paste glue sticks and? Yeah. Like meant well, Sometimes art, art actually, here. rubber cement. You know the smell of rubber cement? Oh yeah. Try inhaling that for. Uh, Ten hours a day. Um, that explains a lot. So you're getting so, real high. Yeah, So I was really enjoying what I was doing. Yeah, um, and that experience helped not only learn. I learned the names of all of the players because you know everyone who's selling and everyone who's buying in the 1990s. I was able to go back and look in the 1980s to see what was happening too. So a lot of the, the these people who've now since become friends um, from dealers and major collectors, I knew their names before I even knew what they looked like, and uh, that time of cutting and pasting was was invaluable for me. And uh, I think I'll look back at that as uh, one of the seminal moments of how I understood the market because you're really studying prices and didn't know what you're doing at the time, but you're you're really internalizing the, uh, what's out there, what's on the market, what's even at that point, what's recycling and coming back into the market. And most importantly, who's buying and who's selling for how much. And that is pretty much what we all do today. Wow. So what, like, just for example, like what were
0: some of the things that were selling and what were they going for at the time?
1: Oh, wow. You could buy a Daytona for three thousand, four thousand dollars How about, how about, how about a Paul Newman at $10,000? Nobody wanted them. That was, uh, that was considered, it's just pedestrian. I remember we'd put like seven or eight of those on a page. <laughs> those watches now are a uh, quarter million dollars for the Paul Newman easily plus, plus, plus. Um, but in the world of Patek Philippe pocket watches were quite strong back then. And which is interesting cause they've been pretty s- stable, if not flat and only now starting to come back. So I look back at some of the record prices bought for pocket watches, uh, at the time it was quite interesting. um, time only um, certain shaped cases like the markowski cases with the nine ninety calibers were bringing big prices in the late 1990s like the eiffel tower, the bananas, all those uh. shaped watches, so those were very strong but on the, on the on the high end, you could buy a a, a twenty four ninety nine for uh, depending on what series uh, for like one hundred and fifty thousand dollars, which uh, today has gone up three, four, five times the value. So the twenty four ninety nine is a perpetual perpetual counter, chrono. chrono gap. Yeah. Yes. So it was uh, it was fun because every sale you felt like you are breaking records from before, and yeah, over the last uh, couple decades, that seems to be the general trend of where watches are going. And, and coming back to the Italians, they had the the eye and the vision where this market's going. We're still so young. Compared to other marketplaces, and and I and I, I really believe that the more information that is shared, that's why education is so important to me. The more that people know, they'll recognize there's so much more value for growth in this as a, a as a collecting circle. And uh, the prices that we saw uh, thirty years ago, which seemed laughable, yeah, um, even five years ago, seemed laughable compared to today. And I have no doubt five ten years from now. We're going to look back at today and, and see what uh, opportunities there are to buy things, and especially within the world of Patek Philippe. So regarding
0: Patek Philippe, when did you start to become more you know, intertwined in that world? Because I think a lot of people see you as an expert on Patek Philippe over anything. Um, when re- does that
1: happen? It really didn't happen until 1999. And it involves my, uh, uh, my wife, who was my girlfriend at the time, and a Volkswagen. Sounds like a story, doesn't it? Yeah. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, all right. So, um, but, uh, incredibly, the Time Museum in Rockford, Illinois, which was the world's leading horological museum, uh, deaccessioned in the late 1990s. And uh, Seth, <clears throat> Seth Atwood, uh, the late Seth Atwood, put together this amazing collection, which included the Graves Super Complication. And uh, it was all sold. <laughs> And uh, due to the family, that was family's close relationship with with Darren Schnipper, it went to, to Sotheby's. So I was part of that uh, initial team to go to Rockford, Illinois. And it was a hotel that was horologically themed. I think it was called the Time Inn, if I recall. Okay. In the middle of nowhere. Okay. Um, I remember... We'd go there for weeks at a time because we were cataloging and uh, studying every last piece, uh, preparing it for potential sale. And even the the little coffee shop there was the center of the, the horological world, uh, where everything on the menu was uh, time themed, like coffees with time themed flavors. I can't remember. It was hilarious. It was wow. It was just for for a watch person. It was the place. The place to be. Hey folks,
0: I want to take a second to talk to you all about 316 and thank them for supporting the podcast this week. I've been wearing 316 denim for years and they're the only jeans I'll buy anymore. Made in the USA with custom woven selvage denim from the famous Kuroki Mill in Japan. They're a perfect blend of luxury and utility that I find myself always going to. I wear their custom taper fit jean and it looks good with my tailored stuff to a plain t-shirt. By the way, they also make that plain t-shirt, and they've been featured in the Wall Street Journal for how perfect their t-shirts are. Trust me. Right now, more than ever, you want to support a brand that not only makes good stuff, but cares deeply for others. And I'm constantly inspired by how 316 runs their business and creates their products. From how they interact with their customers to how they take care of their suppliers and employees. Look, some brands do this well, but 316 does it better. By the way, stay tuned as we're working on a little project together that I can't wait to tell you more about soon. Visit 316.com to learn more. That's the number three, S-I-X-T-E-E-N, dot com to learn more.
1: And that's where I first came across the Henry Graves super complication. And at that point, I knew it was special uh, at that point, I understood what Patek Philippe was, but it was that journey to study obsessively that watch. That, Is that watch for people who don't know. Oh, sure. So it was um, It was built in the late 1920s, commissioned by a New York uh, banker named Henry Graves Jr., delivered in 1933, and it's the most complicated watch in the world up until that time. Um, he, he paid, I believe it was $15,000 for it at the time, in, okay. in the great depression which was uh quite a bit, quite a bit money You could yeah. buy a city block <laughs> at that yeah. point and in uh, this watch is without a doubt the mona lisa of the watch world in the world of patek philippe um it uh traded for the first time uh at uh, auction at sotheby's in 1999 uh 11 million dollars which was uh Number of unheard yeah. of. Yeah. Sold again for twenty four million dollars about uh five five years ago. Um but back to the Volkswagen. Yeah. Um so it was in the process of researching this watch that and and keep in mind the internet had really nothing on it at that time, that uh my my girlfriend at the time and I were uh tasked to find out as much as we could about Henry Graves Jr., who was a mysterious recluse. <laughs> would be a very fair way of saying it. There's no information about him at that time. So I didn't even have a car. We lived in the city. So um, we rented uh, this, uh, this, this Volkswagen and literally drove up and down the East Coast looking for information about Henry Graves Jr. We, uh, we discovered uh, how he was born in Orange, New Jersey, which was, which was quite interesting, how he uh, had this uh, amazing mansion still there up near uh, Tarrytown, New, New York. Um, and we went library to library in in, in the area, just retracing, out everything we could about the Graves family. Uh, now, thanks to one of my favorite watch books, "The Grand Complication" by Stacy Perman, this story has been told in exceptional detail. Um, and uh, but going back 20 years ago, no one knew anything about Graves. So, so my wife and I, and my wife is is an academic researcher, and and she she was able to help me find some really interesting things. To help write the cataloging for this, uh, the, the initial sale at auction of the Henry Graves super complication. The estimate was three to five million. Wow. And no one in the world expected that it could bring that kind of money. And uh, that was groundbreaking. Now, 11 million seems like just another day at auction. But uh, <laughs> back then, it changed everything. And, and on the dawn of Y2K, that kind of set the path where watch auctions were, were, were going. And so why Patek Philippe? It really, it began, I, I truly fell in love with the brand in, in 1999 and there was no turning back. Uh, it, uh, represented to me the, the values of a family owned business. Um, but also the, the, the history is just unsurpassed. I think in the watch world, continuous history, and then the watches themselves, I mean, they, they all, they all speak to me. It, it could be the, uh, a damaged enamel pendant watch that you could buy for $2,000 and I still value that for that Patek Philippe on the dial and it or it could be a watch that's worth um tens of millions and and that's what's so special about the world of Patek Philippe because across all price points there's uh you could have a piece of history and uh it's it's going to be better made and have a better story and better aesthetically and mechanically than than its competition.
0: Yeah, I mean, I know there are a lot of listeners who are Patek collectors, and, and you know, one of the things that I always try to get people to explain a little bit more is, like, you know, what you did a great job of, is, like, the significance of why that brand above other brands is so special. But, you know, one of the things uh, in terms of, like, Patek's record-keeping uh, was something I'd love for you to expand upon just a little bit, and the fact that, you know, say, you know, with uh, for Rolex, and I'm not poo-pooing any brand, but like, you know, they they don't know exactly what dial was on and what case and what bracelet or whatever. But with Patek, that's that's the opposite, correct?
1: Uh, it's it's incredible, and I give all the credit to Philippe Stern for having the vision of opening his archive to the world, and. When I started working at uh, at Patek Philippe, which we could talk about in in, in a moment, uh, I I was able to, for the first time, to actually see the archive room where Mm -hmm. these are all kept. Now, thanks to these major auctions from the the late 1980s and the 1990s, uh, it was quite clear that archives needed to be issued um, for each and every Patek Philippe that was ever ever made. Because... Early, early on, you see letters from the 70s which um, state the facts as seen from the archives, but there was no former, former, uh, formal procedure of how archives should look and how they can be ordered. Right. I believe that all started in the early 1990s, if, if not in 1989, ahead of the auction, going back to it. I think that's when the first archives came out. So by philippe opening up their history the fact that they have these meticulous records which was very rare for the watch industry oh, the-, the swiss share nothing yeah. yeah information is power and they like to keep their power <laughs> so they they for mr stern to have the vision to share this mm-hmm. it just it just fired on all cylinders the marketplace because all of a sudden someone that finds their grandfather's watch yeah can have a watchmaker open look at the movement and case number they could contact Patek Philippe and then find out when it was born and when it was originally sold. Now, never mind the emotional connection, but the, the facts that you're able to see. It's like a time-traveling document that this was what happened and what it looked like when it left the factory. That's something that no other brand does in, in a bigger and better way than Patek Philippe. Other brands have started to do. Archives, and yeah. Um, yeah, no Longines will do stuff like that. To, yeah, yeah, yeah. Omega is, yeah. is fantastic. Vacheron, um, for a time, Cartier. Uh, but for Patek Philippe to be so so sharing, it uh, it really just drove the market to heights we, we never imagined. So for me, that gives me peace of mind because uh, sometimes I love I love Rolex, but they make me nervous. Um, it's outside of my wheelhouse. But sure, when I look at a watch and don't know. The case, the dial, the movement, were born together. Um, never mind bezel ins- inserts, etc. That makes me just nervous. Yeah, that's why I love. You go into the archives. You go, it's a statement of the facts, and then the forensic study of condition is is the next step. You're able to, with Patek Philippe, have a very concrete understanding of what you're you're buying or selling or collecting, and that uh, that very much is attractive to my personality to to know facts. Um, rather than, than fiction. Right. So you eventually start working for them. How did that happen? Because I mean, that's, they don't really uh,
0: hire a bunch of
1: people, <laughs> it's a very small company. <laughs> exactly. It, I thought it was a joke at first. Uh, so this would be, wow, um, it was after the, the grave cell. So like, late 1999, early 2000, I receive a phone call from this mysterious woman. She's like, John, I'd like <laughs> to talk to you. We need you to meet at this restaurant at this time. I'm representing my client. I was like, okay, who is it? She's like, I can't tell you. Are you serious? Come on. So <laughs> I, I remember being a bit of a jackass because I thought it was, I really thought it was my friends from Bristol pulling yeah. a joke. You know what I'm have talking done the about? Same. Yeah. So, <laughs> so I said, unless this is Patek Philippe calling, I'm not interested. And she smiled and she's like, meet me. You won't be disappointed. Once again, I thought it was a joke. But we went to, of all, of all restaurants, La Grande oui. I was like, all right, if my friends are pulling a joke on me, they're not going someplace that has $30 drinks. Yeah. So, so I went, <laughs> went, to, went to the bar, met this woman, and she finally opened up and said, yes, this is indeed for uh, Patek Philippe. And she's like, I'm, I'm doing some initial exploration of potential candidates. Uh, kid you not, the next, it was, it was at least eight months, it Eight was months? A, like a CIA uh, interview process going back again. It killed me because all I wanted was to work for Patek Philippe. I mean, it was a dream come true. Yeah. And they just kept, uh, it was, it was just this long, painful process of meeting person after person after person. And, uh, and I remember meeting um, Hank Edelman, president of Henry Stern watch agency at that time. And I was just, unbelievably impressed met uh, larry patinelli uh who um was, i was just so impressed with his with his background and his uh understanding of the brand but the person that uh, that really um just fueled my fire to work for this company was someone by the name of tanya edwards um tanya was vice president of uh, patek Philippe at the time and head of marketing and she understood the DNA of this brand, and explained it to me in a way that no one ever did before of what it truly means to work for a family made for a family company, and the understanding that it's not just a job. You're you're in a way you're joining a cult. We'll, we'll call it that. Right. Right. <laughs> Your um, everything you leave every every breath. Uh, now I'm starting to quote Sting, but every <laughs> everything you do is about. Protect Philippe, and, uh, and Tanya explained that to me, and I remember asking her. She's like, "Are you sure to make this kind of commitment?" And 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 I said, "I said yes." And eventually, and finally, I got that job offer and started working for the company. And uh, what was your role at the time? So at that point, um, they didn't have titles. So literally, wow, big um, flex there. It, the my business card, yeah, it didn't even say anything. Internally, my job was sales. Okay. Now, this is what it meant. There's two of us. (laughs) Kevin Unger and I were responsible for the whole country. We were responsible for balancing inventories, visiting clients. We were responsible for um, uh, educating at that point, teaching people about the proper way to present uh, Patek Philippe watches. We were the retailer's point person for any problems that could come up or opportunities and this is before the days of, like, allocation. I mean, that, uh, it, was a, it was a few years into my uh, Patek Philippe career. Mm-hmm. I realized when people were, like, fighting to get certain watches and yeah. like, begging for pieces. And then it was, uh, it was, it was a lot of fun. Um, but it was a very reactive job, not a proactive job. You're kind of waiting for the retailers to, to reach out to you. Um, and uh, I had spare time on my hands and that's that's when my my first book Patek Philippe in America came out in 2008 after three years of obsessively working on that Um, it was uh, those years were it was almost a decade at Patek Philippe were fantastic the 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 relationships I made the people I worked with Um, but uh, it uh, I really missed vintage watches that was the problem because you're doing all new stuff and and also
0: at the the time to, to just Interject like not uh it was very rare for any Swiss company to to acknowledge the vintage market like i i, I don't I don't know why that was, but it was I, I guess maybe to get people to buy new, but it was just it was very rare and sort of uncommon for any company to 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 let people know that vintage was worth anything or special.
1: That was all the auction world right and it's I'm going to quote Hank Edelman, um president oftec Philipp at that time. Who answered? I think this in the most brilliant way. When I when I first started at Patek, uh, I asked him, I was "Like, so, what's uh, so what's uh, what's Patek's uh, greatest uh, competitor?" And he looked me in the eyes. Like, I'll tell you the truth, but you can't share it with anyone. <laughs> he said, "Patek Philippe's greatest competition in the world is vintage Patek Philippe." <laughs> and I remember laughing at him. I was like, oh, "That's kind of cocky." <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and you know what? I believe him today. I mean, I eat, breathe and live those words that he said, because I, because I do believe that all brands today are really struggling with the understanding of if you have this amazing modern AP and here you have this amazing vintage AP perpetual, um, prices are getting very uh, competitive and, and, and growing in ways none of us expected across all categories where people are actually deciding whether vintage or modern within brands in a way that's never been done before. So yes, in the past, the the brands kind of ignored vintage and and now they're really embracing it and, and struggling like how to deal with pre-owned and how to deal with vintage watches in a way that's uh, is, is, is quite interesting. It's fascinating to see the dance between, between the two.
0: Yeah. I, I think something too that, you know, I just, just to call out for a lot of people who are entrepreneurs and, and business folks, there's something about Patek Philippe, Rolex, and some of these companies that, you know, I don't, I, it feels like they operate in secrecy. They probably do, <laughs> but the business decisions that they make in the long, in the long road, like, from my perspective, always seem to be the right decisions, no matter what, where you look at, when you look at what people want to do now, like, all these people who are making startups, and they want to build a brand that um, has, you know, like, respect and admiration and longevity, key, and, and, and something like that, and that is, like, their number one goal, and brands like Patek Philippe, that I feel like they, they've always done the right thing. And I don't. I know people are listening to this and are saying no way because they blah 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 blah. But when you look at whether it's certain releases not coming out as often or things being limited or not limited, it they've managed to make this company and these watches the some of the most desirable objects on the planet.
1: It's a really good observation, and and I think we have to respect companies such as Patek Philippe and Rolex in particular to being so true to who they are. Yeah. So they're, they're adverse to change, but they change just enough. Right. They're forward looking as much as they're backward looking. They, they don't exist in time. Um, and it's talk about true luxury. It's cause they don't need to, they're both of these companies doing just fine, (laughs) but it was sacrifices that I think they both made during the quartz revolution and gambles that both of these brands were able to build the foundation for, I think the next hundred years, uh, if we're if we're sitting here having a chat in 50 years from now, we're still going to be talking about Patek Philippe and and, and Rolex. Wow. I, I really believe that, and it's because of what these brands do and how they understand what they're good at, what they're not good at, and the fact they don't react. I mean, when's the last time you saw a reactionary move from one of these companies? It's yeah, like everybody's asking like, what's going to happen now with um, with with Tiffany and Patek Philippe with this uh, new uh, change in ownership. That you know, being that Tiffany was purchased by LVMH. Yes. Yeah. Yes. what's going to be the future of Tiffany Dials? I mean, this is like the, the sorry, it's so the question on my mind because everyone asked me.
0: Yeah. Just so you know, I had 10 people when I, when I told them I was going to
1: talk to you, they want me to ask you about that. Oh, good. We're going to dig into that right <laughs> now. because I think we have to look at it historically in order to give at least our, you know, our armchair quarterback answer. The bottom line is this is the Stearns decision and we can't even speculate what they're, they're going to do. Yeah, um, but I'll speculate. My opinion, <laughs> <laughs> sure. <laughs> I, sh- I shouldn't say we don't speculate, and then we do. But they're they're going to look at tradition. They're going to look at the the storyline of of their history of their relationship with Tiffany, and they're not going to react quickly. Even though the market is starved, that they do something drastic, they're going to sit back and not do anything. And I think that this is what's happening now. It's probably the smartest thing they can do from my perspective. Ignorance is bliss, I guess. Oh, they're not ignorant. They're watching. They know (laughs) know everything. Uh, When I say CIA, I'm I'm not uh, uh, embellishing. They know what's going on in the market, but they're not going to react and do something that they might regret later on. Yeah, Um, and just so listeners
0: understand, um, Tiffany has always been a you know, premier sort of retailer and, and distributor of Patek Philippe watches. And a lot of times... Since the 1840s. Yeah. And so you would buy a watch uh, from Tiffany at Patek Philippe and it would have Tiffany printed on the dial. And they did it for Rolex at the time, but they still do it for, for, uh, for Patek Philippe now. Which is, you know, and so basically the fact that Tiffany is now owned by a pretty big luxury conglomerate competitor not independently owned, uh, people are wondering whether or not that Tiffany is going to uh, still sell Patek Philippe watches that have Tiffany printed on the dial. It's uh, a big question. Yeah. And a lot of people,
1: this is keeping them up at night.
0: <laughs> well, yeah, because some people are like, wow, is my watch worth a thousand X or mm-hmm. are they going to make more? Are they going to, you know, well... Yeah, because I had someone people be like, dude, if you're talking to Reardon, you got to ask him. It's like,
1: all right. I have no inside information <laughs> what whatsoever, but uh, it is my opinion they're going to make the right decision. And this is ultimately a decision of the family. It won't be decided by numbers. Um, it's not going to be decided by a, a reactive emotion. It's going to be decided by a respect for history, a respect for the facts, and uh, also an understanding of, uh, of where this market is going. And, and I think that kind of that timeless understanding of their relationship will help inform the decision that they make in the end. So yeah. stay, stay tuned. Yeah. I think we're going to all have an answer soon enough, but not, not too soon. Jeez.
0: <laughs> so you and how long were you at Patek?
1: Uh, just under 10 years. Which so, is like a hundred years. It felt like industry. a lifetime. Yeah, and uh, it, in retrospect, we had so much fun. It was just a, it was a different, it was a different time, a different era. Um, keeping in mind historically, the American market is very independent of the rest of the world. Mm. A bunch of stubborn Americans, I guess. Yeah. Um, Patek Philippe USA was was founded, of course, by, by Henry Stern. Uh, he was sent over by by his uncle to just really revamp the, the market and take control of it in the 1930s. And then he passed the baton uh, eventually to uh, Werner San, who's, who's a dear friend and he he uh, led this market through the Quartz revolution uh, brilliantly. And up until the 18 sorry, up until the 1960s, keep in mind that 50% of every single Patek Philippe was being sold in America. Wow. So they had clout, they had power. And whatever they said kind of went. and Geneva would would listen. It was more of, of a partnership, um, but I think during the time I was there, that all ended. <laughs> Geneva asserted control. Um, Geneva's in charge. I mean, it's just facts. Uh, <laughs> that's that transition happened in post two thousand. Actually, in, I would say in the nineteen nineties. Yeah, in a way that the the statement was was made, and Geneva is clearly in charge. Uh, and that's why, with my book, I, I stop in 1989 because Patek Philippe in America is the story of Patek Philippe up until 1989. The the story after that period is really a global story, mm. driven by Geneva. Um, so working there through those uh, that transition was was interesting because early on we were able to to make decisions on our own as the American market. Um, but by 2007, 2008, it was quite clear that they had a centralized command and things were, uh, they, we knew who was in charge. <laughs> wow. You know, I think I, I, I read an interview or heard it maybe on NPR or something, uh, where 90% of us all have a, a deep regret in our life. It could be either most, most people, it's either romantic or professional, um, professionally, I'm one of those people that had that regret and that really spoke to me cuz we all have one chance to take a risk to take a gamble mm-hmm. and it's it's that little pivotal punctuated moment in our life where we have to make a decision is it something am I going to bet on myself or am I going to keep doing what I'm going to do and I hope this speaks to everyone listening and we all have those opportunities in life where it's just the right time I didn't want to be that that person that regretted taking that that plunge into the unknown. And yeah. I've been talking about it for, for years of starting, starting my own company, but it, it was about a year ago, uh, today or a year ago, actually this, uh, this month where I made up my mind, I was going to do something on my own. What'd your wife and, say? Oh, well, this was a constant conversation over the years. And, yeah. and I couldn't have done this with, without her, uh, without her support, uh, yeah. without her blessing <laughs> and with, um, and with her backing, I was I was finally able to say, let's, let's do it. And frankly, because she was just sick of hearing me talking about it. <laughs> yeah, a, welcome to enough. my world. Yep, exactly. <laughs> I think we could all relate. Are you going to do this line. or not? Well,
0: okay. <laughs>
1: <laughs> but you're going to pay the consequences and pay the price if yeah, it doesn't work yeah. out. Yeah.
0: You got the health insurance, right? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> you understand, yes.
1: It's all about uh, the nuts and bolts of, uh, can you can you afford to live? Yeah. Chasing the dream, and and with with children with a family, it's uh, you, you need to be very careful. And when you have a nice job at an auction house or a brand, um and giving up benefits, giving up a salary, giving up everything that you're comfortable with, you've got to be out of your mind. And <laughs> and thanks, uh, I, I am so glad I took that leap. And and my business now is it's five months old. I've been independent now for five months, and it's been such a roller coaster of highs and lows and opportunities, but you know, every day I wake up and I'm happy and I haven't had that, that feeling of just complete happiness for, for many years. And of personally, I couldn't be happier, but now when you're professionally and personally happy, you just, you wake up and and, and you're like just ready to, to tackle the day. And that, that's where I am with my life right now. And, and collectability is, uh, is my brainchild. the The whole idea is that I'm u- trying to use education as a way to um, bring people into the world of Patek Philippe. Because once they see the facts, there's no getting out of it. <laughs> it's yeah. just, I mean, I've, I, it's taken me decades to really understand what uh, what this brand means and what their watches um, they they transcend any transactional levels that we're used to in a commodity trading world, and. What, if I could share the stories and share the, the the people and some of the ideas of community behind this, uh, my hope is that more people will will transact, more people will discover it. And um, from from the very early months, which I'm still in, of, of collectability, it's working.
0: Yeah, because something that's happened over the, the course of your career and tenure at, at all the, the roles that you've had is the watch world has... Like nuclear exploded beyond anyone's belief and expectation, to where dorks like me are into it, and then you have people who are buying watches as watch funds to trade in, and and you know you just have all these different people from all walks of life getting into this industry. Um, you know Hodinkee it would kind of help to launch a lot of things, but also I think and one thing I, I want to you know definitely discuss is if this is not like just for the richest of the richest of the rich. Like there's a you could still be in this watch world and care about this stuff and start
1: very small and build your way up. Yeah, within the world of Patek Philippe you can buy an extraordinary watch for under $5,000. And people don't they think the cost of entry is $100,000. It's not. And and that's that's kind of the pleasure of it across all yeah. price points that people can be be part of it. And that's why my my site it very clearly shows my asking prices it mm-hmm. kind of, it, I want it to help the numbers sometimes help inform the market where people can get in. Uh, I also talk about, uh, pricing trends, um, yeah. the Nautilus in particular, which has been a, a hot button issue recently. Yeah. Um, I also just, I dig deep into the people, the movers and the shakers in the world of Patek Philippe in a way that you can't, if you work for an auction house and you definitely can't, if you work for Patek Philippe, <laughs> So right. I'm completely independent of of, of Patek. And um, by being so independent, I could say and, and share what what's, what my opinion is. And some people disagree. Some people embrace it. And that's what's so much fun because more and more people are involved than ever before, as you pointed out. Yeah. I was just at the Singapore Patek Philippe exhibition a few months back, and I think they had 100,000 people come through. And I don't know if they did age demographics, but I'd say a huge portion of a huge, huge proportion would be under 30 years old. Oh wow. And they were so connected looking at the museum pieces at the, at the, the new watches and seeing this new generation obsessed. It's -hmm. just so good for what we all do. Yeah. And, uh, and that's why education is all that matters. Uh, We need to to teach people to know what they're buying, what quality they're buying, uh, how, how to buy, how to sell. and, In the traditional transactional methods, maybe those uh, weren't so transparent, and uh, and hopefully collectability will bring a little more transparency to the world.
0: Yeah, I mean, I I, I'll kind of call that out a bit: is uh, places that would sell in the past were not always super clear on every single issue with whatever the watch was. Uh, You know, not that things were not that people were trying to be, you know, tricked, but it was just it was more about moving something, and and from. What I'm hearing from you, it sounds like you want people to be informed and educated, and the product's going to sell itself. You're you're the teacher who
1: also has stuff versus a, a salesman, you know, opening up his coat. Right. That's a fair way of looking at it. Another way is every watch I sell, I don't want to sell. It, it cracks me up. It's just <laughs> I I look at each of these pieces as there's it's part of the storyline where they came from. I try to know everything about the provenance. And yeah, uh, I'm just uh, I'm just keeping it for a short amount of time until yeah. it goes on to a future owner, with the hopes that I could buy it back <laughs> from them someday. So it's almost like a collection. I'm able to collect, but even though I'm not going to keep everything at the at the end of the day. And uh, I'm because I yes, the the website is public, but I could I don't have to sell like at auction. You deal with who you're told to deal with. <laughs> ah, now I could be a little a little trickier. And um, there's some people coming in there just, I want to buy for investment. I want to double my money over the next three years. All right, I'm not your guy. Um, it's it's. We're not going to be playing the investment game. I want to sell to collectors who understand, who really know what they're looking at, that we could discuss patina on a dial. We could uh, discuss escapements. I mean, th- that's much more interesting. Yeah. Uh, and that's why I'm avoiding the modern commodity market. I'm not interested in, in flipping 5711s. I mean, that's just not not my thing at all. There's plenty of people doing that in the Diamond District and yes, around the is. world. Um, but there are very few people focused on only vintage Patek Philippe. And I, I really, I see it, it's a billion dollar industry estimated just pre-owned vintage Patek Philippe that's annual turnover. Now that's huge. Yeah. (laughs) So I always joke, I'm happy at 1%. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, sure. Um, but with social media and, uh, and with, uh, uh, other ways like including this amazing podcast. Thank you so much for, <laughs> of for, course, for hosting yeah, yeah. me. We're able to get the word out uh, about um the gospel we're trying to preach. Yeah. And we're able to share things that might not have been shared before in this secretive uh, Swiss world. And and I think the more people that understand it, uh will be able to um to be part of it in in a very real and meaningful way. Yeah. Because I mean, you you travel all over the place speaking, and you know, like you were in the yeah, I was recently in uh, in Dubai, yeah, in, in Kuwait, I did an event with uh, Jazm zarahi Patekaholic, in uh, the middle of nowhere in the desert. Okay, it was my first outdoor gig. It was it was fantastic. Yeah. <laughs> it, it was it was partnered with uh, Remy Julia from from Christie's. I gave an amazing amazing speech. I gave a talk, and then uh, of course uh, Jazm. The the level of um, commitment to learn, especially from the region in the Middle East, is yeah. I, I, it's a hunger. I mean, people just want to learn more, and they they don't want to buy what everyone else is buying. They want to study and find what they want to buy, and that that's the truth of a, a real collector. I mean, Henry Graves. I bet his buddies thought he was crazy when he was like, he's like paying the same money for a city block for a watch. But yeah. you know what? He kept that. That was his private pleasure. And he uh, he had a collector's heart and uh, was very knowledgeable about what he was buying. And I think today, the, the next Henry Graves is out there. Um, there's a lot of mini graves out there, people buying things that they, they will never sell and that they just have a complete understanding. And that's, that's the pleasure of what we do. Yeah, that's huge. Well, so... You're
0: you're so entrenched in this watch world, but like, what are things that you're doing to kind of keep you disconnected and refreshed? So when you jump back in, you're not burnt
1: out. Oh wow! I th- I always said I, you could never work harder than with with what I did in the auction world. I mean, I felt like I was working 23 out of 24 hours. If not. Oh wow! It was uh, insanity. And and many of your listeners, you're you're working just as harder, if not harder, I, I, I know. And being self-employed adds another layer of pressure Yep, <laughs> that uh, you understand completely Yep, that makes you go the extra mile. It's all on you. So what I'm trying to do to survive this, uh, this new life that I'm, that I'm living is surround myself with people that I would trust my heart and soul and life with personally and professionally. And, uh, that's why the first person that's, uh, that's on my team officially with collectability, uh, come back to Tanya Edwards, who we discussed earlier. Uh, was the former VP at, uh, Patek USA. She's, she's now officially on the collectability team and she's been eating, breathing, living protect Philippe since she started with, uh, in, in the mid 1980s with the, with the brand. So she, she understands now surrounding myself with people that I could just truly talk to and learn from constantly mm-hmm. should always be people on your team that are better than you. Yeah. And, and that's, even though I have only have one person on the team now, there will be more hopefully shortly. Uh, I want people that can really challenge me um, that we have shared values so that this company can grow in a way that's uh that's that's healthy, that reflects my passion, my shared passion for, for Patek Philippe. Because although I'm not affiliated with Patek Philippe, I kind of fantasize that I am. <laughs> it's like, I really want people to look at, they're like, okay, if so I'm going to buy a vintage paddock. I want to go to collectability. These are people that know what they're talking about. They're, yeah. They they understand. They have an uh, uh, incredible database and access to uh, to information. I want people to be able to buy with complete and utter trust. And the only way I could do that is to have people on my team that think the, the same way philosophically.
0: Yeah. That's awesome. Did you talk to
1: Patek Philippe, like the company, or Philippe Stern when you were getting ready to do this? Um, they, the the Sterns were informed okay. uh, about what I'm doing, but uh, it's completely independent of yeah. Of course, Cerns. I and, and I. This is this is gonna sound like a therapy session, sure. But to speak to anyone who's left Patek Philippe; they all feel the same way. You always feel you still work for them. Really, that's the cult thing again. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, you always feel responsible to the family. So did you like have to get their blessing? No, but uh, in a way I, everything that I I do, anything that goes on the website, any way I present myself, um, I'm going to, to do in the way that you would expect a Patek Philippe person would. Right. And you always, you want to live by those values of, of the brand. And, uh, it's it's funny for those uh, just i never really articulated this but for those that i know that used to work for the company they feel the same way they might have gone on to work for other companies they might have uh, uh gone into different industries mm-hmm. but they always feel that that loyalty and and kind of the code <laughs> <laughs> of uh, of of the world of Patek Philippe, so yes, I want that to be reflected within collectability. But on the other hand, it's we're a completely independent voice giving our opinion yeah. on on the watches. It's not a, a statement of fact from Patek Philippe. Um, there's ultimately the the archives um, are the the final statement. Yeah, that I see in in the Patek Philippe world, and uh, there's some people there that are very knowledgeable that uh, aren't going to publicly make a statement on a dial or publicly make a statement on uh, how many were made. Right. Um, But that's, uh, I can as an independent, give my opinion and uh, informs.
0: Interesting. (laughs) That's awesome. John. Well, I, I cannot thank you enough for your time
1: and everything for, for chatting with me today. So first, thank you you for this opportunity to speak openly and share what's on my mind informally. Um, I, I just encourage everyone to really thank the people that have helped make their, their careers and their livelihoods, what they are today. I mean, so many, for me, for so many collectors, so many mentors, so many friends. And I was just talking to to Eric wins yesterday. I mean, he helped inspire me to go out on my own to do what I'm doing today. Um, to take the leap from leaving an auction job is, is not easy. And, Mm. uh, and I, and I think we should uh, take the time to thank those that, uh, that challenge us. And uh, hey, life keeps marching forward. It's the decisions that we make today, which uh, are setting the path for tomorrow. It's such, such a simple thought and idea, but uh, everything that we do matters. And, and try to help someone else out. Maybe someone will help you. Wow. That's really beautiful. Oh no, I'm serious. Thanks. No, thank you. All right. Good talking to you,
0: John. Thank you. Bye. You've been listening to Blamo. Our theme music is by Breakmaster Cylinder. Our editing is by Brendan Finn, and we're produced by Blammo Media. Follow along with us on Instagram, at Blammo Podcast, and leave a review for us on your favorite podcast app. If you want even more Blammo, head over to patreon.com forward slash Blammo to join the Blam fam and get access to additional interviews, a community slack, special events, and more. But best of all, you're supporting the show. Yes, there's a lot of people working on this, and we love your support. We need your support. So try it. It feels good. Thanks, everyone. We'll see you next week.